This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Hi, folks. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones, host of the podcast Transformative Principle and author of the book School X, which is all about redesigning your school for the people in front of you. Greetings, folks. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in New York, I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cyber Traps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cyber Traps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I are teaming up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the nation's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, cyber safety, sociology, and probably more than that. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. Hey, Jethro. Good afternoon, Fred. I am so excited to talk today. Oh, likewise. What is this, number three? Number three today. <laughs> How cool is that? We're just loading them up. This is good. That's right. So our guest today is Eric Stevens, and his dissertation research was all about how researchers fall into traps, good for this podcast, using data sets they don't create themselves. They adopt assumptions of the database design and the methodology, and he discusses how social justice researchers employ the doctrine of double effect to justify unintentional exploitation of their subjects. And he proposes big data research, a big data research method to counter those exploitations by focusing on data created by institutions and not users. So Eric, welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. Uh, hello, gentlemen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, it's good to have you, Eric. Thank you. Yeah, we're excited to have you. So first, let's just start by talking about how you got into doing a dissertation on uh, traps researchers use using data sets that they don't create. I mean, I would have never in a million years thought of that for a PhD, and yet you you did your dissertation on it. So tell us about how you got into that. I knew going into my doctorate program, um, a couple of things. Um I knew that I wanted to do big data research. 
Um, I just thought it was, it was really cool. The potential that was out there it was a buzzword, um, a lot of fun. And I knew that I wanted to do large data sets using specifically corpus linguistics. Um, so using the, the text itself as data, as a data source. Um, I also knew that I wanted to do social justice research. Like I want, I, I wanted to do something that um, meant something, right? Like I didn't want to just research to research something. I wanted, I wanted it to matter. And I think I still do for that. Yeah, that's good. So tell us about what, what that, the traps are that people fall into when they're using these data sets and how they bring their own biases into that or the biases of the data that they've collected that they may not even recognize exists. Yeah, I think that, <clears throat> I think when, when someone wants to go in and they want to do research, often they don't, they don't realize that the, they, like a research, they, they want to be as unbiased as possible when they're doing their research. What they don't understand is where they go to do their research is already dictating a bias. Uh, one of the readers for my dissertation, Michael Meng, um, he uh, he was a historian and did this archival, like he did a lot of uh, cool stuff with history um, because historians, they, they, they make these claims to, to factual, like to, to this, is, this is what happened um, without realizing, well, this is what happened according to a set of artifacts that were found and located and archived in this one particular, <clears throat> in, this one, in this one particular location. So the, a bias already exists. The exact same thing exists with a data set. Um, if you're going into a data set, you are not only um, adopting the, uh, the inherent structures that are there, but also the biases that were created or that, that were used when that table was created. So Eric, if you would, um, to inform me and, and actually anyone else who's listening, what are some examples of the kinds of big data sets that you're referencing? I mean, obviously, I can think of something like Google Books, right, which is going to be a data set driven by who got published. So there mm -hmm. are biases built into that. What other examples are you working on or, or thinking of when you discuss this? So when I was doing my particular research, I was focusing specifically on prisons. I knew that I wanted to do research in prisons. I watched a great episode of last week tonight on with John Oliver. Um, and I was, I knew I wanted to do social justice, as I mentioned before. And so I, I picked prisons. And when, when you're going into and doing research with prisons, you have to be very um, careful with, with what you're doing as far as um, the type of data that you're collecting, especially with IRB approval processes. It can be lengthy. It can be just really problematic when you're working with prison populations. And that's why I wanted to help. I wanted my research to help prison populations, but I didn't want to use the prison populations as my site of study. Um, because even though I could go through every IRB approval thing that I could to show that I was not exploiting these people, but what it came down to was that my research was helping me hopefully get tenure or get more research funding. They're not getting a slice of that pie. They're not getting an author credit. Um, and so I wanted to, I wanted to approach, like I wanted to, I wanted to find a data source 
that was not reliant on user information because the, the, the problem, and I can kind of get into like, into like the philosophical thinking behind that. Cause like, that's what, like I did, like my, my background is in rhetoric and philosophy. And so I got into like this where I could really into this deep thinking about what happens when your identity is replicated over and over and over and over and over and over. Um, and so we can go that in that direction if we want to though. Well, if I can interject um, just a little bit here, because one of the books that I uh, have written was called American Privacy. And it was really what I described as a biography of the right to privacy in the United States. And one of the things I was fascinated by was the unintended consequences of the creation of a massive data set of financial information when we invented credit cards. And when we linked credit cards to specific social security numbers, and all of a sudden two things that hadn't existed in 1930, 50 years later, were really dictating how people moved around in the world. And of course, that's expanded now with mobile telephones, narrowing down our our particular uh, digital pictures, if you will. So there's huge ethical and, and philosophical implications in all of this. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's what and that's what I wanted to do because basically who who I am like genuinely as a person is I I want to disrupt things. Um I want I want to find out what 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 and how things work so that I can go in and tinker with it and make it what in in my eyes is something that is more ethical because I, I I claim to be an ethics scholar I and mean, that's what that's what I want to do is do to do good ethical work, um, and if I'm trying to and if and if I approach my research, um, and I am with with the intention of helping a group of people, but I am using the data that they themselves have created and have been replicated by their their own personal identity replicated over and over and over and over my research is already flawed ethically some people that's not a big thing for me it was problematic because i didn't want to feel like i was exploiting people but i still wanted to help and so my research, like I, I ended up like what I, what I ended up creating was um, a, like I wanted to, I wanted to understand the prison system at the language level across time um, and across space in the United States. Um, basically I wanted to understand if we send a person to prison, we're sending them to a correctional facility. Um, with correctional officers and we give them handbooks to say, Hey, this is what you should be doing. What I wanted to answer was at the language level with the technical documents that we hand to um, an inmate, what are we correcting them to, to what standard are we asking them to be at the language level, not at like a political level when they're making a speech at like when you when you write it down now you have two ways to do that you can sit down and read 350 documents ranging from 3 pages to 150 pages right or you can train a computer to do it and so that's what i did um i partnered with um a great friend of mine bed webster and a friend of his katie blakewell 
Um, they're two established um, data scientists out of NLP Logics. They specialize in doing this kind of thing. And, and for me, it was a fun, fun side project. Um, it took them a total of a weekend, really, to like smash out the code and to do what we needed to do. But I, I created this corpus. So <clears throat> I created, yeah, it was over 350 documents. It was over, I think, 400. I can't, I, like the, the numbers are kind of blanking on me. Um, but we ended up with, um, I think it was over 400,000 unique phrases um, that that carried a definition. So we were able to, um, we were able to predict what a word meant by its proximity to all the other words in the document. So we created a dictionary based on the, the corpus itself. Okay. So. Okay. okay. Hold on a second. Okay. Let me wrap my, my mind around this. So you were talking before about user generated data versus mm-hmm institution generated data. And so instead of serving all these inmates uh, over the course of 30 years and getting that data that they gave their opinion on, you went to the documents that the prisons created to tell what they were doing so that you would have institution generated um, data instead of user generated data. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. So like, so coming into, I wanted to fix the prison system. I wanted to make an attempt, like fix, here's a crack in the prison system. And I wanted to do it in a way that wasn't using data created by inmates. So if I could draw a parallel then to education, for example, instead of, um, a instead of evaluating and using the data of student responses to test questions, you're using the data of what the test questions are to see what the institution is, is actually asking the kids and creating a new dictionary based on all that. Is that, am I interpreting that correctly? Couple of different, boy, this is just like, I've got my mind racing on this, Eric. This is really amazing stuff, but First of all, an observation. I mean, the work that you're doing, just to follow up on Jethro's analysis or analogy, I guess is the better word, is that um, evaluating and understanding what the school expects of the students from the wording of the tests that are administered over, say, eight decades, is a really valuable way to understand the expectations of the society, right? And, and what you're looking at is the prison society. So you're looking at what do these institutions expect of the people within them? But it's not necessarily going to tell us anything about whether or not the end result was what was sought. You know, and you can have this language either on the tests or on the prison manuals, but in a way it's aspirational. This is what we hope people will do. And, and so you would need some of that user-generated information to determine the success of the particular documents in achieving the goal that it's trying to do. So that, that's just one observation. But the other thing that fascinates me, because I write about the impact of technology on society, what you're doing is the kind of thing that is getting fed into AI. And so you could produce the ideal prison manual based on the corpus of material that you have, if you feed it into the right 
you know, deep blue or deep prison, I guess we'd call it. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that there are definitely um, some really cool implications. Like one of the things that one of the aspirational things I want to do with like, you know, phase two of my project that I pitched, like when I was on my tenure track uh, job circuit, right. Was to take this corpus of this, this database that I had built um, and because essentially I didn't really, I didn't honestly, I didn't, with my dissertation, my research, I didn't answer any questions. I didn't really do anything like that. What I did was created something and provided an ethical reasoning for why I didn't want to do answer a question. Right. Um, but you created a mode of analysis though. Exactly. Exactly. So, so, so now what I can do is empower other people to ask really interesting questions and let them do really cool research. Like that's what I can do as a person to help other people in their research, right? Which is um, why we need ethicists to figure out how to do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like it, it helps to study ethics, honestly. Um, and so now, like here, here's something that we found in this research, that there is a high correlation between the word punishment and the word woman. And, and it, like, I looked at 350 handbooks in the United States. Every state was accounted for. Federal, local, um, county levels, right? Every level, there's a strong correlation between those two words. Why? I have no idea. Can you elaborate a little bit on what the correlation looks like? How, how did okay. that play out? Uh, the method is called the bag of words, right? You put... You put all of the words from these 350 manuals into a big giant bag. And then you shake it and you say like, okay, things that are similar fall together. Okay. Um, and it does that through some really cool vectoring and math stuff that my friend Ben and Katie could talk about with for hours. I'm sure. Um, I just know buzzwords about it. Um, but essentially like what you can do is if you give um, the algorithm let's say you give that, give it a sentence that is 25 words long, it can accurately predict what the 26th word will be. Um, it's not going to be exact, but the other words that fit into, like, it's like there's a something percent chance it could be this. There's a something percent chance it could be this, right? So, it, so what it does is you can define the word you're looking for by the other words it thinks it is. Well, I don't know if you use Gmail, but Gmail uses the corpus of my emails to do predictive technology when I'm writing an email. Oh, and it's actually absolutely. Get, it's getting a little scary, actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I mean the 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 te- and see, and that's and that's kind of like the, this going back to this idea, of like like big data in and of itself is not an evil thing. Like it's not it's not necessarily a trap. It's not like it, but it's it's amoral it depends on how the person is using it which kind of like this is why i think that it is important like for everybody especially like if you're working with data you gotta study ethics well Um, i'm sure you i'm sure you've heard the latin phrase scientia est potentia which is knowledge is power and one of the concerns that i have about big data um as as a concept as a construct is that the more data we bring together the more that is known and the more that can be predicted about our behaviors. I mean, Cambridge Analytica and its use of Facebook data 
is a perfect example of how this stuff can be misused. So, you know, it's a power source like big oil or big sunshine or whatever else you want to talk about. Um, it, it can do good things or it can be really destructive. And this is where I think there's there when you have this idea or this big thing going on, um, it takes on an, a life of its own. And and so you're talking about the correlation between the word punishment and women or woman. And when that correlation happens, then it starts to feed into other areas in a way where it can it can get out of control and you can't you can't control what it's doing at that point. And I think that that for me is one of my concerns around big data is that eventually things start happening that nobody intended, that nobody expected. And it goes back to reaffirm why if you're doing big data, you should be an ethicist as well. I, I think when it comes down to um, like the debate about big data, um, I, I, I feel like it's, it's at the point now where it's, 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 it's no longer about should this be happening? Because it's it it has already happened, um, like and so so that that's a fun thing to talk about. But then we have to ask like, what's the next step? Like so so if we just accept that that is the world that in which we live, one that is filled with data, um, then 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 what is the next thing that we do? Um, and and for me, what what that turned into for that research project was here's a tool that someone else can use to do good work, right? To, it's, it's, it's basically to, to build an intentional tool that it is designed to not exploit people. And what it is designed to do, what I coined this thing is called institutional genre analysis, um, is to go into an institution and to study what it is and what its goals are across time by the documents they themselves produce so that we can understand who these giant corporations are. Like at the core level, we can figure that out and we can analyze it and we can study it. That, I mean, that's a really fascinating way to approach this. Let me ask you this though, because I, 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 I'm trying to get my head around all of these amazing concepts that you're introducing us to. It's, it's really terrific. But in terms of, of this genre analysis for institutions, doesn't that imply kind of a, a unitary approach to institutions in the sense, I mean, it's almost as if you're imbuing them with a personality. And of course, institutions and organizations are made up of myriad individuals. Is there a group think then that emerges? Is, is that an implication of what you're talking about? To think that a, a company doesn't have a personality, right, is to underestimate how much money they spend on branding. Um, like, like, you can, like you can tell, like you can go into a job uh, onto a job. Like, I mean, I just came off a whole bunch of like job market stuff, right? You can look at a job ad and you can just kind of get a feel for the tone of the company, right? You train a computer to make that feeling judgment hundreds of thousands of times, right? It can get pretty good at that, at that kind of thing. And so you can go in and you can, I mean, th this is the same algorithm um, 
the algorithm branch, I would call it, that Rotten Tomatoes uses to make all of their predictions about movies. Like if it's a 76%, like there's not someone going through and reading every review out there. They're using a sentiment analysis algorithm, right? To see if this is a positive review or a negative review, right? You can, you can do that with a company's core mission statement. I mean, that, that's something that was, that was produced by committee, by a company, and they are trying to imbue a certain personality. What this does is takes a look at everything and look at, and like, like one of the, one of my other readers um, uh, from my dissertation, Austin Herzog, he made an incredible analysis of a tool. He took every speech that every Senator made over a certain period of time. Um, and he ran his learning algorithms on it. Right. Um, and then he took how the person voted and then he did an analysis and said, this is how conservative or liberal this person said they were, and this is how they actually voted. And you go in and you could engage with the data and look at your Senator and say, Oh, this person is like, just kind of like BSing here. Like they're, they're saying all this and like, he's doing that through language sure. analysis. I'm not sure that's groundbreaking analysis for politicians. Well, but but here's but here's what it is right and this this is and this is this is why I wanted to do what I wanted to do is because we understand that that is an underlying assumption that we can make right but it's always that thing that like you can just never quite point to that's what institutional genre analysis does it allows you that's cool it allows you to give empirical evidence to anecdotal gut feelings. Everybody knows that there's institutional racism. How can you prove that? Institutional genre analysis. So what's really cool here, Eric, is that, um, is that what I was thinking as we were discussing this is, you know, I've had, I've had these gut feelings about different companies and, and, you know, how much they value me or different schools and whether or not they value kids or teachers or whatever the case may be. And I've, I've thought, I've seen how that has played out and been proven true. Um, but what I like that you said there at the end is that this, this shows that there is an uh, empirical evidence that, that that gut feeling checks out. And, and what I think is so amazing about that is that we as humans who aren't doing PhD research on this particular topic, we should probably listen to those gut feelings and, and make decisions based on some of those gut feelings because they, they probably are pretty accurate and you're showing empirical evidence that, that they in fact are. So how does this affect us like in a day-to-day way as normal human beings? Um, here's what I did, right? Here's how I internalized it was to, um, any document, and this is what I taught my students, right? Any document that you create, understand that it has its own personality, that once you send it, it becomes its own agent in a network of living and non-living things. And it has influence and it doesn't have influence, just like you do as a person. Um, and so understand that that's how things function, right? And that you are engaging with all of those data points at a, at a micro level, what I did with my teaching when I was at my previous university where I was laid off from due to COVID was 
I looked at the, like go, go into any fresh first year, first year classroom and look at the syllabus, look at the learning outcomes. And there's probably five or six of them because that's the genre that there are. And look at how far down the word writing actually happens. It's not very high up. I, I find this particularly painful as an author and, and Jethro is as well, you know, that, that we've both had a chance to put some books out there. I, I'm struck by your comment about the fact that documents, things we write have lives of their own. I mean, you know, we're, we're a male mm-hmm. panel here. It's as close to children as we'll ever have to put a book out in the world. And you don't know what that book will do. You don't know how people will react to it what its implications will be. I mean, it's, it's fascinating stuff. But now you've got me thinking about what would happen if someone ran this analysis on the corpus of the books I've written. That would be <laughs> really both interesting and scary analysis to have done on you. Yeah, because I mean, because what it does, and, and, and this is essentially what I was trained to do as a um, English major and as a rhetorician was to do close analysis of of documents or of, of objects um, of, of a particular artifact. Um, what I wanted to do was to perform that same level of analysis on hundreds of documents at the same time and to understand those relationships. Like I was able to understand that, there, um, that the idea of discipline is not very prevalent in Northeastern states local prisons it's not a thing like it's just that that makes sense because they're usually like they're holding cells right like they're just like there for transport and they're like three page documents you get into uh into texas state penitentiaries it's a very different story right um their documents on average are about 85 pages long right and so like there's some really cool things that you can understand um, about society. And that's something that I wanted to do was really to just make change happen um, and doing it in a way um, where I wasn't using the user. I wanted to critique the institution with what the institution produced. Cool stuff. So then the question becomes, what is the mechanism for getting the institutions to be self-reflective enough to look at this research? <laughs> uh, well, I think the first hurdle would be to get like industry to listen to academia. <laughs> Ouch, <laughs> <but> yes. <laughs> um, no, but uh, yeah, I think it would, I think what it would involve is actually kind of what's happening already in, in a lot of like, you can kind of, you can kind of feel the trend building up about the idea of data literacy. Um, And it's, it's the ability to engage with data and understand that data has a story. And, and once you understand that that's what data is, um, is, is a tool that you can use to tell a story I mean, we've been telling stories since we've been around. Well, right. And I would say, Eric, I think, I think you're really latching onto something because I would argue that, that businesses and institutions have been using data to tell stories for quite oh, a long yeah. time in often de- detrimental ways to society. And so what's so encouraging about the work that you're doing 
is that this is an opportunity to tell much more socially positive, ethically driven stories, which is great. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And and that's and that's what I that's what I want to do. I I understood going into the social justice research realm that I had to come to uh, terms, I guess, for lack of a better word, with my identity, with who I was as a person, who I am as a person. And I am a person who really embodies like every privilege that is out there. And they, not, we don't need, we didn't really need another one of my voices out there kind of like advocating for this thing that I had arbitrarily chosen because I watched John Oliver. So I wanted to build a tool that other people who are invested in this thing can use. Um, and like, it, I think that that's what, what, it, what it's going to take to answer that question um, about like, what, what, what should, what can industries be doing? I think it's just as, as much as we need a data literacy, we need an ethical literacy. Um, and that's something I can like shout from the shout from the rooftops um, and like kind of like work into my, my sphere of circles um, or however that phrase goes. Um, but yeah, I think that's, I think it's, it's an ethical learning. Yeah. Well, and I, one of the things that I'm frustrated about is the idea that we should be ashamed of our privilege. And that's not something that people are, sometimes people say that outright, but I think we need to recognize what our privilege is and use that privilege to lift up and help other people who don't have that privilege. I think that that's, to me, that's what having privilege is, is being able to, to use that to do something worthwhile and meaningful. And that's, that's exactly what you're talking about here. And I really appreciate that because it's easy to think, well, I shouldn't do this work because I'm privileged and somebody who's not privileged should be in here doing it. But the reality is, is that because I'm privileged, you know, in, in our last episode, we interviewed uh, Charles Logan and he talked about how um, at higher education institutions, the people with privilege and power are the very people who need to be refusing um, the use of educational technology that is harmful to students or, or faculty and how they're really the only ones who have the ability to, to do that because of their privilege. And so I, I appreciate what, what you're talking about here. And, you know, going back to Fred's question of how do we get institutions to, to change on this and just them being aware enough, first of all, as you mentioned, Eric, that they need to recognize that their materials have a personality of themselves. And that is infused through the people who are creating it. Just recognizing that first and foremost, um, as a, you know, a English teacher, we called that voice, <laughs> but, but there's more to it than that. And, and it can be damaging and, and hurtful to others. Uh, but it certainly doesn't have to be. And if we're paying attention, we can make things, uh, we can make things better for people. Let me ask you another question then, Eric. Um, you, you have a, a way to, to deal with big data as a researcher, but how should we as normal everyday humans be interacting with big data and um, what, should, what should our approach be? This is something that I always love to talk about with my students because um, I, I was a writing teacher. And I said, when you understand that we live in a world of consumerism, um, you have a couple options, right? You can just continue to consume um, or you can be critical while you consume, right? Or you can just like not consume anything and then just be better about everything. Um, but you know, like you got to eat. Um, and so I think that, that 
that what you should do um, is understand that you are always a target audience. Like you're, you're always, always trying to be manipulated by something. Uh, one, of the, one of the cool things that I love about rhetoric um, and understanding, like if a document has its own life, then other things do too. Like, like the way that um, a university designs and places a building has intent, like has, has a reason. So like they're trying to direct you to do something. So understand that everything that you are doing, someone is trying to manipulate you to do something. Um, and be critical of that. Right. And, and that's exactly what I was going to say, Eric, which is that so many of our podcasts, I think, Jethro, are organizing themselves around this idea of critical thinking, which is one of the fundamental skills, I think, that we need to elevate in our school system, K through graduate school. Um, there's, there's so much need for people to be able to do that, whether you're talking about politics or toaster ovens or television shows, you're absolutely right. The goal is to tap into your emotions, to manipulate your actions in some way. And if you don't think through why that's being done and what the implications are, then, you know, what's, what's the term sheeple? You know, that's, mm -hmm. that's where we're at. And, and I, I hope we can encourage more critical thinking at all levels of schooling. And here's like the cool thing to think about with critical thinking, right? Is that when it comes down to it, what is the actionable thing that you do when you critically think about something? At its core, it's a question. Like you're asking a question. And so that's like to answer that, that previous question about like what, like what should we be doing um, at, the, at, the, like at the small scale when we're engaging with data is to, un is to just keep asking questions. Like just, like just have fun and be like out of curiosity. Um, like, hmm, I wonder why does the Walmart have this aisle thing right here? I mean, somebody made a decision to put it there. Why? Um, and so just like, just, and have like one of, one of, the, one of the best uh, um, moments that I had as, as, a, as a teacher was when a student uh, came up to me and said, uh, like they did a rhetorical analysis of a Taco Bell packet. Um, and they said, look, like, here's this thing that I understand now about what Taco Bell is trying to do with their, their branding campaign and doing the, And I was like, yes, like be, be critical um, and ask and be like, be, um, be skeptical about everything and ask questions about everything. And so that's what I would do. Like, like no matter what you're doing, ask questions about why you're doing it. Well, and a shout out to the old magazine, The Skeptic, which is just a wonderful publication. I actually don't know if it's still printed anymore, but a fantastic source of questioning, right, about different things. I think one of the things, Eric, which I think is inherently challenging, though, about what you're talking about is you remember the character Pigpen from uh, Charlie Brown, Snoopy, right? I mean, the guy who walks around with a dust cloud all the time. The problem is that we do that with data now with mobile devices. We, we have a perpetual cloud of data that we kind of emit. And I think part of the problem that we're grappling with as a society is that a lot of times we don't even realize we're interacting with data because it's so infused into the ecosystem around us. And that, that, that's a level of questioning I think it's hard to get any of us to reach effectively. 
Um, yeah, I think so. Um, but I think that it just like, I think that it starts with just like trying to um, grow a natural curiosity just about things. Um, Cause I think that, I mean, that's where it will take it because if you, I mean, the idea of data manipulating our lives is not anything that is new, right? I mean, that's been going around for a long time. I mean, what is powerful about it is what we talked about before is when you start pairing that data with other data sets. Um, and that's when you can start really making interesting um, assumptions and predictions about, about uh, people and behavior and things like that. It's going about, and, and it's, it's kind of, it's actively having that questioning attitude, no matter what you're doing. Um, and especially, and I think that you're right. I think that you're absolutely right that there needs to be a little bit more of a heightened level when it comes to social media. I mean, people are still doing those quizzes about who your personality is. And I'm just like, have we not learned anything from 2016 people? I mean, there's yeah. an exhibit now in the like, spy museum in DC. Mom, you don't need to know which puppy you would buy. <laughs> well, and I, yeah, it's, it's bizarre. And I think that it's like, it's interesting to, to think about, uh, you know, things that, it, how, how it should have gone down or whatever it is. Um, but, but, but what it comes down to is, is what's next. Like after we make that critique, what's the next thing that we do? Um, and we can do it at, at a larger level. Um, that's what I chose to do with my research. Um, or we can do it at an internal level, um, which is, yeah, trying to question everything that I do when I engage with a website. You know, it's interesting as, as I have kids who are between nine and 14 right now and, um, and they ask to, you know, play certain video games or games on, on devices or whatnot. And it's really interesting to hear the things that they ask, the things that they are interested in and the things that they, that they are picking up on that, you know, we, we didn't really have when the three of us were kids because we didn't have all these devices and, and ways to get our attention so much. And, and it's just been interesting to see how my kids have navigated that. And I don't have like a, a perfect story to illustrate. So this is what you should do or whatnot. But, but what I have noticed is that they have, they have gone through phases where they've exp experienced things in a different way and it made them pay attention and they realized, wait a minute, what happened there? And so I do have an example, actually, I lied. Okay, so they had, they were, there was this uh, little game they were playing, there were ads between the levels, right? And one of the ads showed um, a person like playing the game and the person kept dying. And my daughter said, oh, that, this is how I would solve that. I bet I could be, I could do better than that person. And it was a beautiful illustration of how the uh, the game company created this ad that showed the person making a mistake so that you would say, I could do better. I should go download that app. Totally worked on my daughter. She was totally into it and said, we got to get that. And I got to show that I can do better than that. Just completely fascinating. And, and I said, why do you think you can do better? And she said, well, uh, because they should have gone this way or that way. And I said, so do you think that the the ad that's trying to get you to download the game, did it work? And she said, Oh yeah, it did. And then it was just like, never mind, I don't want it. It was so, so <laughs> fascinating to see. Yeah, once once you um once you understand to what extent you're being manipulated, 
um, it kind of makes other things. It's like, oh, like I, I don't actually want to do that. Eric, this has been a fantastic conversation. So interested in in the work that you're doing, and thank you for sharing it here with us on the Cyber Traps podcast. Um, and uh, it's just been a real pleasure having you here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you, I appreciate it. That wraps up this episode of the Cyber Traps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity. <laughs> That's not in the news at all privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of interesting experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps, and we hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. You can also find us on Facebook at Transformative Principle and Cybertraps and all over the internet. If you enjoyed this podcast, and if you're still listening, you probably did, please leave us a rating and review and share it with your friends. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra helper intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com slash B to learn how IXL's research proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's ixl.com slash B-E.